Now we're going to go into our series, and we are in Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Acts chapter 9. And if you don't, and you'd like to follow along with the Bible, we have the Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. And while you're turning to Acts chapter 9, I want you to think about this. You don't have to call out your answers, but I want you to think about the word transformation. And I want you to think about what images, thoughts, pictures, stories come to mind when you hear the word transformation. What does transformation look like to you? We're in January, and one of the things that comes to mind to me in January every year uh, regarding transformation is the whole concept that it's a new year, which means there can be a what? A new you transformation. And many times that's people telling you why you should buy this new piece of equipment or why you need to sign up for this health club. Um, Transformation. We want to go from the way we were to the way we want to be moving forward. We want to look better. This is a great time of year for people to transform their bodies. It is a great time for people to transform their homes. Organizational stuff always goes on sale in January. Did you know that? That they like marketers, they know this, that they push you for three months prior to Christmas saying, buy, 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 buy. And then they tell you in January, organize, 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 because you bought, 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 bought for three months before that. So they do all the organizational stuff in January. So transformation, how to transform your body, how to transform maybe your homes. I am very fond of some of these before and after transformation shows uh, where they either transform a house that was a mess and they make it beautiful, or for some reason I got I got stuck on this thing many months ago. There's this YouTube channel, and I do not have any idea what it's called, but there's this guy that goes to homes that are just a wreck, and he does free landscaping. I don't know if any of you have ever seen these videos before, but these homes look like they haven't been like trimmed, mowed. The lawns have been a wreck for like 20 years. And he comes in there with his equipment, and he trims, and he edges, and he cuts. And I'm just fascinated. And it is so... I don't know what it is about watching someone else trim someone's lawn and see everything edged and everything, and then they blow it. And you know what I'm talking about? Like, that gives me an endorphin, and I'm not even doing it. And I really, really like it. And it gets me excited because there's a transformation. It looked one way, and then it looks something different. And the after always is incredible. So I don't know what it is about that. Maybe he's just trying to get free uh, more views on YouTube. Um, but it is a ton of work, and it's very exciting to me to watch things like that. I know I just put my nerd hat on, but I don't care. I like it. And it makes me feel excited to watch the things go from something that was chaotic to something that was beautiful. I'm sharing that with you this morning because transformation is also one of the most significant and and powerful words we can use to describe Christianity. Christianity, the byproduct of Christianity, should be transformation. The byproduct of Christianity is not going to church It's not attending services or giving money in an offering plate, which we don't really do that anymore. We do buckets. Um, It's not singing on a a worship team and listening to the right things or going on Christmas or Easter or, or celebrating. It's not about those things. They're all components of Christianity, but at its very core, Christianity is about transformation. And not just any type of transformation, specifically transformation by Jesus Christ. And that's the message we're going to look at today. And the title is called Transformed by Christ. In Acts chapter 9, we are looking at 
transformation and how that happened through Jesus Christ. Every week in our Church in Motion series, we've been looking at different character traits that we see in the New Testament church and how those, ca- those characteristic traits are supposed to influence us to understand how God created the church to be and why He came. And we've looked at so many different options. There's so many different um, uh, examples of that. Last week, Pastor Rob talked about persecution, and he talked about how persecution leads to multiplication, and it brings multiplication. Today, we are looking at transformation, and I wrote it up this way, where I said, if you want to be a church in motion, basically, a church in motion is transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. The church in motion that we see in the New Testament, which also is us because we are a New Testament church, is transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. There are a few events that make the legitimacy of Christianity hard to reject. People are always looking for ways to prove or disprove religions, and Christianity falls into that. But there are a few events that make the legitimacy of Christianity hard to reject. Number one, I believe, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, death, is a very common thing. Power, powerful teachings, I should say, of world leaders or religious teachers is not an uncommon thing. And even claims of different miracles that people have said they've done over their lives when you look at religious leaders, they're not uncommon. But resurrection, no one claims to have been raised from the dead but Jesus Christ. It's the difference. Claim of the resurrection Jesus died for three days. He was in the grave for three days. He rose from the grave. The resurrection is one of those events that prove the legitimacy of Christianity. The second that I think, and there are many, but I think the second that I would list in this order would be the transformation that is evidenced in the lives of the apostles after the resurrection. It's really hard to dispute the fact that the lives they lived and the deaths they died were all given and done for the sake of Jesus Christ. People have said that, sure, well, maybe they were just all deceived. Listen, no one gives their life for what they gave their life for, knowing that it was a complete hoax and a farce. They would have been insane and out of their mind. Yet when you look at the history of the early church, every single one of them gave their lives. They brought the gospel message to places all over the world, and they became, as the Bible says in Romans, living sacrifices. They actually gave their lives fully devoted to go into the world and make disciples, and they taught the good news of Jesus Christ. These are two things that I think make it very difficult to disprove Christianity transformation is that peace. When, when, if Christianity is real, if Jesus Christ is who he says he is, we will look and feel and act differently. Because, in its very core, Christianity says we are made new because of what Jesus did. It's not just this box that we check or this thing that we believe in our mind. The scriptures literally say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone be in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There is a transformation that begins at the point of salvation. So I want to ask you this morning, do you want to live a transformed life? I'm talking to those that are followers of Christ, but do you want to live a transformed life? Because if you are a follower of Christ and you've put your heart and your faith, I'm sorry, in Christ, transformation goes along with that decision. And if you do, does it sometimes feel really difficult to live that transformed life? You know, I can tell you personally, um, it can be a real struggle. 
sometimes I get up and it is true that I don't really know what day it is sometimes when I get up and I actually ask myself that out loud most of the time. What day is today? Um, I guess that just happens as you continue to mature in life, right? But you know, there are some days also and seasons in life where it's easier to be on fire and passionate and walking a transformed life. And then there are some seasons where it's really difficult. Maybe you have had that experience and you know what I'm talking about. Living a transformed life can be a struggle at different times. And there are many examples of transformational experiences in the Bible. Many of them. All of them are miraculous and clearly the work of God. Um, But some seem more extraordinary than others. The one that we're going to look at today is the most significant, most extraordinary transformation that I believe is written about and recorded in the scriptures, and that's looking at the life of Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. Many would say the Apostle Paul is the most likely, I'm sorry, most unlikely person to experience a transformation. And if I could contextualize that for you, um, if you were in high school and you had a yearbook, you know how they had the place where like all the seniors would get voted and you'd have like most popular, most athletic, you know, most likely to succeed. If there was a category, most unlikely to be transformed by Christ, Saul of Tarsus would have been selected for that. He would have had his picture there and his fist would have been up saying like, you know, I don't know what he would, but I'm just saying like, that's the guy that they would have picked to be most unlikely transformed by Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at his life for a little bit. And I want you to hear something this morning. And I think this is important right up, right up front. If God could transform Saul, he can transform anyone. If he can touch the life of Saul, and make him from one who hated Christ to someone who would die for Christ. He can do it in anyone. Why do I say that? Before we read in Acts chapter 9, let me give you a little context briefly about who Saul was and why this is so significant. Scripture teaches us, based on our understanding of history and Scripture, that Saul was a devout Jewish man. And this may be a repeat for some of you, but he was a devout Jewish man. He was a Pharisee, which was a Jewish teacher. He was part of the spiritual elite. He was raised from a young boy in the law, understood the law, practiced the law. He knew the Scriptures better than anyone else, according to himself in his own autobiography in Philippians chapter 3. He was fully devoted to upholding the law. There were 613 Jewish laws in the Old Testament, and he was considered by his own account to be faultless with regard to following the law of God. Pretty arrogant statement, wouldn't you say? In regards to legalistic righteousness, what he means by that is with regard to being righteous before God by following the law, he considered himself faultless. Pretty big shoes to fill. In fact, he was a big deal. The first time we see evidence of Saul is in chapter 7 of Acts, when false accusers are standing before Stephen. Stephen is one of those who were elected as a deacon in Acts chapter 6, and Stephen preaches this message to those around him about Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus being Christ. And Stephen inflames the people. False accusers, they stone him to death And the scriptures say that Saul is standing there instigating the whole thing. It actually says he's giving approval to his death, but that wasn't him sitting in a chair saying, that's a good idea. No, he was literally there 
egging them on, literally saying, yes, do this, yes, do this. And he was behind the scenes as they were stoning Stephen to death. He was giving approval of the death. He encouraged the accusers, the false accusers, to kill Stephen. But he wasn't just a troublemaker. He was a lot more than that. In Acts chapter 8, we see a little bit of a glimpse as to what Paul was capable of doing. And it's in verses 1 through 3. I want to show you that first. Look at verses 1 through 3 in Acts chapter 8. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. This is just after Stephen was stoned. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Scattered all throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men burned or buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And look what it says in verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He wasn't just a man who was a matter of talk. He was a man who was a matter of action. And if you were a follower of Christ, who knew Jesus Christ, you were afraid of this man. You were fearful of this man because not only did he want to throw you into prison, he wanted you dead. Why did he want you dead? Because you believed Jesus Christ was the Messiah and he was the spiritual elite in the Jewish faith who knew that was a lie. And everything you were saying was heretical. Everything that you said was heresy and it was challenging the Jewish teaching of that time. He wanted you to shut up and even if that meant putting you in the ground, he was okay with it. No one would have been a friend of Saul if they were followers of the way, which is what Christians were called in the first century church. So do we have a kind of an idea of what's happening at this point as to who Saul of Tarsus is? Bad dude. Stay away from him. Scared out of your mind that he's going to come into your house and you're all going to go to jail. This is the kind of guy that you do not want to mess with. Let's go to Acts chapter 9 because God had a different plan for this man. Amen? Chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile... Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues and Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, those were Christians, followers of Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Stop just for a second. He's asking the high priest for permission to take letters to Damascus, which was in Syria, which was 135 miles away. He was so passionate about stopping the message of Christ that he was willing to travel 135 miles away to the synagogues there, look for people that were followers of Christ, grab them, drag them out of the synagogues, take them to prison and bring them back to Jerusalem. That's how passionate this guy was. Don't want to mess with this dude. Verse 3, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand, or by the hand, into Damascus. For three days, I want you to remember this, church, for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Verse 10, in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And look at this next part. For he is what? Praying. In a vision, 
he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. See where we're going here? Ananias, right? I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for this part of the conversation, right? Hey, Ananias, yes, Lord, I'm your humble servant. I have a task for you. Yes, God, what would you like me to do, Lord? I need you to go to a street called Straight. Okay, and I want you to pray over a man there who's waiting for you. Yeah, okay, and his name is Saul of Tarsus. Excuse me? (laughs) He's waiting for you. He's doing what? Like, we need to contextualize this, guys. Like, this dude is really scary. God is telling Ananias, are you my follower or are you not? I have a job for you and I need you to go to pray for the person that wants you dead. So Ananias, after he gets up off the floor, that's not in scripture, but I'm interpreting. Okay. Ananias says, this guy is trouble and he wants to arrest all of us. Verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, I love this, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And remember this part, church, verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It's like in that moment, Ananias was probably like, okay. So I'm going to pray for him and you're going to use him, but he's going to suffer? Okay. All right, we're good. You ever see this before? I'm going to show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. Remember this. You see, every time I've read that over the years, I can imagine Ananias saying, Lord, I'm not going. No, no, he needs to, he needs to hear from you, Ananias, because he's going to be my chosen instrument to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, with the truth of, of the gospel. Oh, and he's going to really suffer. Oh, okay, I'll go. Like there's, he's going to get his mindset. Can I tell you, I don't believe that that was his heart at all. Ananias was obedient. But this part of verse 16 wasn't really for Ananias' sake. I believe it was really for Paul's. Verse 17, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Look, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He takes his mission to the high priest in Jerusalem, gets written permission to travel the synagogues in Damascus with the sole purpose of identifying believers who are followers of Jesus, arresting them, imprisoning them, even if it means their death. He was determined to stop them at any cost because they were speaking 
a lie that was compromising his own faith and belief. And yet he becomes the greatest example of transformation that we see all through the Scriptures. Where Jesus gets a hold of him, puts him on a completely different path, and now the man who was passionate about destroying the church is passionate about growing the church. Can you think about a transformation that's any better than that? Think about the significance about what this means, and yet... I mean, I'm stumped when I look at that. And if, and if you look at that the way that I look at it, I keep asking myself, how did he do this? And I don't mean, how did Jesus do it? Jesus is Jesus. He can do whatever we want. I mean, how did Paul experience this? And how did his life show this type of transformation? It is so dramatically different. How does he demonstrate this? How did he transform the Apostle Paul? And how can we experience the same transformation? I think the answer to the questions today can be found by looking at two things that happened in Paul's life. And I'm breaking them out as two because I want to spell them out, but I really think they're the same. And I just want to briefly show you them because they're right here in this passage. How Paul's life, I'm going to say how Saul's life was transformed by Jesus Christ. How was he transformed? The first thing that he did, we see in the scripture, is that he made Jesus Lord and Savior of his life. That's the number one thing that he did. He made Jesus Lord and Savior of his life. Did you notice that I didn't say he made Jesus Lord? And I didn't say he made Jesus Savior. He made Jesus Lord and Savior. Both of them together. You see, very, very often, we're, let me read verses 3 and verse 3 to 5, and I'll explain what I mean. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And his response in verse 5 was, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Can I tell you, everyone has a Lord. Everyone has a master in this world. Bob Dylan said many years ago, you're going to serve somebody. And that's the absolute truth. Every one of us serve someone. A Lord is a master. A Lord is the king of our lives. Some people serve money. Some people serve stuff. Some people serve image. Some people serve themselves. But everyone has a master. Everyone has someone who is the Lord of their lives. The definition of Lord actually is the king of my life, the ruler of my heart. Someone said, to say Jesus alone is our Savior emphasizes that our sins are forgiven. And that's true. But Jesus is Lord emphasizes a reorientation in our lives, which includes our sins being forgiven. But I'm no longer the king of my life. Jesus is. And this shift, this shift or reorientation in our lives changes everything. We can declare Jesus as our Savior, which is true, but just because He's our Savior doesn't mean He's our Lord. See, there's a difference. In this world, and you hear this many times, maybe you've grown up with people saying, you know, you just need to ask Jesus into your heart and ask Jesus into your heart and he'll save you from your sins. And, and Jesus becomes like this, like this vending machine where it's like we just go and we say, Lord, I believe you died for me. Or Jesus, I believe you died for me. Save me from my sin. Thank you. Now I'm going to move on. And that's not what the gospel teaches us. 
The Gospel teaches us to become a follower of Christ. We don't just ask Jesus to save us from our sin. We make Him Lord of our lives. And when He becomes the Lord of our life, what comes with that is salvation through His death, sacrifice, and resurrection. You get the forgiveness when He becomes the Lord of your life. Paul had a Lord. His name was Yahweh in the Old Testament. He was Jehovah. He was the Lord. Elohim, the great I Am that we just sang about. He was the Lord. And I thought was so beautiful about this is that he knew that God was talking to him. Paul, sorry, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul knew who his king was. And he was Yahweh. And what was his response? Can you imagine? Well, the king of my heart is Elohim. Is Yahweh, is the Lord. Are you telling me that I am persecuting my Lord? So what was his natural response? Who are you? Because Paul, in his good conscience and his inexperience, never would persecute Yahweh. He would never persecute the God of the Old Testament. He would never do anything to offend. We just understood from earlier that his sacrifice was to give his life towards this. That's what he did all of his life. And to have a message from God Almighty say, why are you persecuting me? Had to stop him dead in his tracks. Imagine what it was like when he encountered the Lord and the Lord told him he was persecuting the king of his heart. That's why he asked, who are you, Lord? What am I doing wrong? And the Lord's answer, I'm Jesus. You see, Yahweh is the Lord of your life, but I am the Son of God, the mighty Messiah, the Savior of mankind. And as you persecute Jesus, you're persecuting your Master. So after three days of prayer, Ananias comes. He tells him he was sent by Jesus to pray over him and to regain his sight. He prays and he is healed. Look at verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I love the immediate response to this. This is something we all should take a step back and learn from. The immediate response to the revelation where his blindness is removed and he can see is to get up, be strengthened, and give his life to Christ. He gets baptized. Baptism did not save him. Baptism was the result of the decision that he made. Why? Because Jesus was Lord of his life. He made him the Lord. And what did we see all through the Gospels? Jesus told his disciples years before, before he left the earth, go into all the world. And what did he say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He became Lord of his life. And then anything that God asked him to do, or I should say Jesus Christ asked him to do, he would do. This is important for us today in this world because, you know, I'll use our baptism service as an example the end of this, this week, or the end of this month, I'm sorry. I've known so many people over the years who are followers of Christ. They've given their hearts to the Lord. They've trusted in Him. And they say, He saved me, He saved me, He saved me. Have you been water baptized? No, not yet. Why not? I just don't know if I'm ready yet. Well, that doesn't mean anything. I don't understand what that means. Baptism doesn't save you. You're already saved. Baptism just tells the world that you're saved. Baptism tells the world that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't make you holier to do that. You are simply following your master's instructions. That's what you're doing when you're water baptized. But we live in a world right now where we kind of have separated salvation from lordship. And we say, I can be saved by Christ, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's my master. So the things that I agree with, I will do, but the things I'm not sure of yet, maybe I'll get around to it someday. And I'm not saying you're here this morning and you believe that. I know some do, but I know that there is a culture where Jesus as Savior is appealing to some, but Jesus as Lord is offensive. Can I tell you, he has to be Lord of our lives so that he can be our Savior. Otherwise, we're just looking for him to give us something for ourselves as opposed to accepting him as the God that he actually is. Does it make sense this morning? Paul made him Lord and Savior. And because he made him Lord and Savior, the transformation began and the regeneration began in his life and he went from being dead to being made alive. That's where it started. But it didn't end there. Because the next way he was transformed was that he died to himself and he lived for Christ. Remember I said earlier, these are actually one and the same, and they are. When you make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life, you die to yourself and you live for Christ. When I make Jesus Lord and Savior of my life, he's my master, I die to myself, and I live for Christ. That is the way it's supposed to go. But I'm breaking them out because it's so important for us to understand that making him Lord and Savior of our life means that we no longer live for ourselves, we live for Christ and Him alone. And after Paul received his sight, the Scripture says he regained his strength and he became a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, at once, look what it says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All of those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. His ministry began, and history shows us how how far-reaching it was. The resume of Paul's accomplishments, the churches he planted, the miracles that he did, the missionary journeys he went on, Luke dedicates over half of the books, the half of the book of Acts, to the works of Paul, beginning in chapter 13 all the way to chapter 28. He transformed the world, not because of who he is, but because of letting Christ be the one who lived through him. That's where the transformation happened. Let's not forget the words of Jesus, the words Jesus spoke to Ananias, though, in verse 15, about God's plan for Paul, remember? But the Lord said to Ananias, verse 15, Go, this man's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And suffer he did. He suffered for the name of Christ. He suffered for Christ where he became the servant, Jesus became the master, and he was obedient to everything that Christ asked him to do. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives a brief summary of his suffering. And, and I, want to, I want to show you this just for a few moments and, and explain why this is important for us to understand. Beginning in verse 23, look what he says. He says, I've worked much harder. This is 20 years after the experience on the road to Damascus. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. Are you encouraged yet? Anybody? I mean, like, holy cow. I read this and I'm like, wow, this dude's in serious danger. Verse 27, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. And I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. And that's what's so important for us to remember this morning. As the worship team comes and we're going to close in just a few moments, I want you to make this connection with me this morning. Transformation begins when we make Jesus Lord of our life. He becomes our Lord. He becomes our Savior. And we are no longer in charge of our lives. Transformation continues as we continue to follow Him by laying down our lives and taking up His. Every day, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he calls it living sacrifices. Some of you are familiar with that term. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, he says. Lay down your life every day knowing that Jesus is the one who's in charge of your life, not you. Jesus is the one who's in charge of your life, not you, not me. And what I love about this This level of persecution and struggle is not a formula that all of us have to apply to our lives, but the principle is the same. God uses suffering to make us more like Christ. He uses adversity to strengthen us and make us more like Jesus. He uses difficult things to walk through. Why? Because in the difficult things we walk through, They are spiritual at their very core. And they can only be solved with spiritual means. So the only way we can experience hope, healing, and restoration through them is to lay down our physical tools and to take on our spiritual. To say, I can't fight this on my own strength. And recognize that in our weakness, He wants us to be strong. It is in your weakness, church. It's in my weakness that we need to recognize the strength that we can have from Christ. This isn't a celebration for adversity. You know, I understand the people, you know, that say, hey, let's just get on our soapbox and thank God for bad things. I mean, hey, you do you. I don't want to do that. But scripture teaches us through the greatest transformation in all history that when we give our lives to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we die daily so that he can live through us every adversity, every strength, every adversity, every suffering, moment of suffering, every problem, every anxiety, every pain, everything that comes our way, we can approach him and say, we're weak. We have nothing, Lord, except for the spirit of Christ that lives in us. Because when we are weak, we are strong. And we can stand in the power of Christ And when we stand in the power of Christ, 
we recognize that the death that Christ had on the cross is more than enough to handle every difficulty we could ever experience in this life. Paul summarizes this in Galatians 2.20, and listen to what he says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm saying this to you because each day we have a daily choice. Each day we have a daily choice. God transforms us through his power, but it is human effort that's dependent on God. Transformation that builds maturity, transformation that brings us to maturity is human effort. But we look at our lives and we look at Jesus as our Lord and Savior and we say, I'm going to die to myself each day. I'm going to do what you're asking me to do, and then I'm going to depend on you to make me strong. And you know what's so beautiful about that? Is that he's bigger, stronger, better. I mean, Ephesians says to the God who gives us more than we could ever hope for, ask for, and imagine, everything about what God can do through us is greater than we could ever try to accomplish in our own strength. And when we see this in the humanistic perspective, we go, oh, we need to die to ourselves to give to Christ, and we need to suffer. And Christianity sounds absolutely ridiculously painful. Can I tell you? That's the, that's the paradox of it. In the midst of our greatest pain, we see the greatest promise. In the midst of our greatest suffering, we see the heart and the face of a Savior. In the, great, in the time of our greatest weakness, we see the wonder of what God can do in us and through us through the power of His Spirit. Do you hear me? Are you with me? Like This is so important for us to understand. And can I tell you, it is the message of the gospel through the entire world that God wants us to bring to the world. To live for Christ means to die to ourselves. And when we choose to live our lives through him, every minute of our lives, every thought, every resource, every decision, every word that we can speak, it changes to make us more and more like Jesus, to be used for his purposes, to ask and to be more like him. And what Paul found through his 20 plus years of walking as a follower of Jesus is that he went from a man. We'll fast forward when we get into Acts a little bit further into the book of Acts, and you'll see that when he goes back to Jerusalem, no one wanted to spend any time with him. They were all afraid of him. And yet he became the greatest single mouthpiece to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He had three missionary journeys, planted dozens of churches, performed miracles, saw people healed, saw people delivered from demonic oppression. And in the end, he goes to Rome and gives up his own life because he was crucified with Christ. And he no longer lived, but Christ lives in the man. Can I tell him the beautiful part about the transformation? He says in Philippians 1, chapter chapter 1, he says, I'm, I'm promised and I'm trusting in the fact that one who is faithful, who began a good work in me, who began a good work in you, is faithful to what? Complete it until the very end. Because God is good. God is faithful. God is helpful, sure, but he's holy. And he knows everything. 
And he knows that when he calls us to become the student and him the teacher, and when he calls us to be a slave to Christ, and I use that word carefully, but it really means slave to Christ. He's our master. He doesn't take us down a path that hurts us or harms us. He takes us down a path that breathes life in us that is about eternity, not just for the moment. That's the power of Jesus Christ. That's what happens when the king of the universe becomes the king of our hearts. Would you please stand as we get ready to close in a worship song? Father, I just come before you today and I just pray blessing over the church. I pray, Lord, as we look through the life of the Apostle Paul and the transformation that occurred through Paul's life, we would be reminded that the same Jesus that called Paul to lay his life down and to make Jesus the king of his heart is the same Jesus that calls to us today, each day. And not because he demands our service or our servitude, it's because he knows how we're wired. Lord, it's because he knows that that he has good things in store for us. Father, that, that your son knows the best, knows the way, and that we can trust him because he is good, he is faithful. He is our friend. Help us to trust in you, the king of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray.